0: Our Father, there are times in life where we get overwhelmed and there are times in life when life is just kind of normal. We, uh, we thank you for the normal times. We, we thank you for the times when the stress level is low, when things are going relatively well, when we have peace in our hearts, when we are not uh, overstressed or overburdened, we thank you. We have those seasons, we have those times. Uh, We have times where we are in a crisis mode, where we are uh, having to make decisions under a timeline, under great pressure. Um, Those are times where sleep is at a minimum and we're running on adrenaline. But we thank you that it's not always that way. But there are times, Lord, when we get overwhelmed. And we get overwhelmed with the pressures and with the weight and the burdens. And we find ourselves in a tight spot. And we're not sure what to do next. And we don't see any way out. And that's when the psalmist said in 142, verse 3, when my spirit was overwhelmed, you knew my path. There are times, Lord, when we're not sure about the next step. There are times when we're not sure about the decision that has to be made within hours, within days. We're just not clear. But we are grateful that even when things aren't clear to us, even when we are in the dark, you're never in the dark. When my spirit was overwhelmed, you knew my path. You've got a plan. You've got a purpose for every guy in this room. Some of us are doing really well right now. Others of us are, we're in the depths, we're in the darkness, we're just about being crushed by the pressure. That's when we get overwhelmed. We, we have no place to go except to you and to your word. So tonight we would pray for those who are overwhelmed. They may be sitting around us and they look fine. They look normal, but inside they're just trying to hold it together. Encourage uh, the men here tonight that are overwhelmed that you know their path. You know the next step and you will give them the wisdom they need to make that decision if they'll call on your name. And, they'll, and you'll give it to them at the right moment. They may not have it now, but, but when they need it, they'll have it. You've promised to give us wisdom. And even when we're in the dark, you'll walk us through the dark. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I walk through the valley of deepest darkness, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. We are not in this thing by ourselves. We're in it with you and you're out in front of us and you're leading us. And you're walking us through all the days of our lives. And you will not abandon us, you will not leave us, you will not forsake us. There are times that we are unfaithful. You are never unfaithful. Uh, And then you come through for us and do something amazing and we just, we, we, we think to ourselves and we'll even say to someone, You know, I don't deserve this, and that's absolutely true. We don't. We don't deserve any of it. But what an amazing God you are, full of grace and mercy and loving kindness. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord, even if we're overwhelmed. You'll get us through. We thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, we are in Ecclesiastes 10. And once again, if I had to title this, Here's what I would title it. And by the way, I have to title it because that's one of the things they want to know when we're done. So since this has been going on for a number of years, I had this brilliant idea, well, why don't I come up with a title before they ask me? And uh, so that's what I've been doing the last few weeks. Uh, so tonight, I, I've got uh, a, a two-sided title, like the, I think I had it last week, like two sides of a coin. So here's the, here's the first side of the c- title. Uh, I would call this tonight Sense and Sensibility. And then the other side of the coin would be Folly and Foolishness. That's all in Ecclesiastes 10. Ecclesiastes 10 runs parallel to what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mountain is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Turn with me to Matthew 7. Because we want to look at two statements Jesus made. Solomon is going to reiterate tonight the exact same principles in Ecclesiastes 10. So let's go to Matthew chapter 7. As he's on the mountain, as he's on the mount and the thousands are gathered. In Matthew 7 verse 13, Jesus said this. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. What Jesus is saying here is that there are two roads in life. There are two paths. Uh, There are two um, uh, trails. Whatever synonym you want to use... There are two roads, two paths, two trails, and you're on one or the other, and you choose one or the other every day. Most people are on, what did Jesus say? They're on the Broadway. Isn't it interesting that most major cities have a boulevard called Broadway? And it's very popular, a lot of people are there, and there's usually a lot of action on Broadway. And some people, they want to get to Broadway, Because if I can make it here, I can make it anywhere. If I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. I think that's Proverbs 4.16. Actually, that's Frank Sinatra. New York, New York. Broadway. Maybe you've been there. If I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. But the problem is, and he made it, but the problem is, is where Broadway leads to. That's the problem. Broadway leads to destruction. This is why Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the unpopular gate. Enter through the road that not a lot of people are interested in. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And fewer those who find it. Uh, when your kids are in middle school, junior high school, uh, on the high school, one of the things you try to do is equip them to uh, withstand peer pressure. Because you know most of their, fr- their friends are on the wrong path, going the wrong way. Because you used to be that age. But uh, isn't it interesting when you get out of high school and you go to college, it's the same thing. Most of your peers are on the wrong path, on the wrong trail, going the wrong direction. Uh, They're going to hit a dead end. But it doesn't stop when you get out of college. I don't care where you are in life, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. No matter where you are in life, the name of the game is to withstand pure pressure because most of your peers are on the wrong path, going the wrong direction. And this is where we all start. But when Christ comes into our lives and we... We trust in the Lord for salvation. We trust in him to be our savior, to be our God, to be our master, to be our Lord, to be our shepherd. When we trust in him and we start following him, you know what? Sometimes your friends drop off because you're not as much fun as you used to be. Something's happened to you. Something's changed. What happened? You got off the broad road and you got on the narrow road. Look at, uh, if you would, verse 24. He's wrapping up the Sermon on the Mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Uh, Earlier, he's talking about two roads. Here he's talking about two foundations with the same principle. And how does he define this? Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. A lot of people hear the words, but they don't do anything about the words. They don't apply them to their life. But if you hear his words and you act on his words, ah, then you're compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against that house. It did not fall. It had been founded on the rock. But then in 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Uh, The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Uh, What he's talking about is a wise man and a foolish man. You got a wise man, you got a foolish man, you got a narrow trail, you got a broad trail, Oh, and by the way, you've got to choose a foundation. Either solid rock or sand. Now, this is exactly what Solomon's talking about in Ecclesiastes 10. He's talking about two roads. He's talking about two foundations. He's talking about wisdom and foolishness. That's what Ecclesiastes 10 is all about. So let's flip over to Ecclesiastes 10. So tonight, we have got, I I see in Ecclesiastes 10, I I see five sections. Let me go ahead and give them to you up front. The first section I see is verses 1 through 3 of Ecclesiastes 10. And what you have here is the contrast between wisdom and folly. The contrast between wisdom, or you could say foolishness. And we'll come back to this. Then in verses 4 to 7, you got the second main division. And basically this, I would, I, would, I would describe it this way. He is telling us, choose wisdom under tyrannical leaders. Choose wisdom under tyrannical leaders. Then you've got the next section, the third section, verses 8 through 11, choose wisdom in your work. Choose wisdom in your work rather than foolishness. And then in verses 12 through 15, which is, would be the fourth section, choose wisdom in your speech instead of foolishness. And then in verses 16 to 20, you've got choose wisdom under foolish officers or bureaucrats. Interesting Solomon would talk about this, but Solomon was a great king. Uh, He had officers under him. He had uh, 12, if you will, vice regents who were each assigned a section of the country, and they were each responsible to provide for all the needs of his household and his staff, and it was quite a task. They were each responsible to provide one month's income and there were 12 of them, so that would get through the year. So he had guys under him, officers, officials, they had guys under them, they had guys under them. Okay. So that's the big picture. Let's go back to verses 1 through 3, because this, uh, this, he just dives right into it. Now, r- r- verse 1 is really a fascinating verse. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weighty, weightier than wisdom and honor. Um, is that your life verse? <laughs> Anybody ever ask you what your life verse is? Give them a, yeah, Ecclesiastes 10 one. Uh What is this all about? Well, really, what it's about is what, what just came before it. Now, you remember, of course, that these chapter divisions weren't in what Solomon wrote originally. They were put in later just to help us find our way through the book. So back up, if you would, to 9.16. I could back up further, but just for space, I don't want to do it. Let's start in 9.16. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded, The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. That's the point. One sinner destroys much good. Um, And as we said last week, uh, the all-time example of that is Adam in the garden. There was much good, everything God created. In the opening chapters of Genesis, God created... On the first day and he said it's good second it's good it's good everything is good he creates Adam and then suddenly it's not good what's what's not good it's not good that the man should be alone so what he does is and Adam names all the animals and he's out there looking to see who's out there maybe there's someone you know and he's noticing there's two of each kind and the male and female they correspond to each other and you know I mean the guy's single I mean he's a little bit lonely he he's looking Look, wouldn't you be looking? Um, But nothing's working. And then one day, he falls in a deep sleep. The Lord takes a rib, and and he wakes up, and here's this woman standing there, absolutely stark naked. And he's thinking, all right. (laughs) Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, I think is actually what he said. I mean, there's some excitement there. Hey, this is no hippopotamus. I mean, she corresponds to me. And it was good. And it was good. But now, we're going to have a problem because the woman is going to be tempted, and then he's going to go along, and what was perfect is now completely broken and devastated. And we call that the fall. And we've been dealing with it ever since. Um, One sinner destroys much good. This is why Christ came. This is why Christ came. This is why he was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He went to the cross. He died uh, according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. He said, I delivered you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the 12, he appeared to over 500 at one time. Lastly, he appeared to me, Paul said. This is the gospel but Christ came because one sinner destroyed much good. So he comes and he puts us back together again as we trust in him. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. So that's the concept, and then you go right into verse 10, and he's going to restate the whole principle in another way. Yeah, one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. Um, Man, when I was in college and you had a date, I didn't walk out the door with a little bit of English leather on. I haven't thought about English leather in a long, long time. I don't even know if English leather is still in business. But English leather, man, that was the thing back then. Uh, I mean, I put it in my protein shake. It It was just, there was something about English leather. But you go to pour out your, you know, a little shot of English leather and a dead fly comes out, you've got a problem. Just one, just one, just one fly. It's going to mess up the whole thing. Just as one sinner destroys much good. A little foolishness can do a lot of damage. That's the point. A little bit of foolishness can do incredible damage. See, what he's going to do here, he's going to contrast wisdom and foolishness. Note verse 2. A wise wise man's heart directs him towards the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him towards the left. Now, I want to stop here, and I want to read Philip Ryken here, because he absolutely nails this. Ryken says this. He says, it is vital to know the difference between wisdom and folly. Most Christians can distinguish good from evil. We know that some things are morally right while others are morally wrong. So we try to do the right things instead of wrong things. This kind of thinking is fine as far as it goes. The trouble, however, is that some of the most important choices in life are not between good and evil, but between wisdom and folly. Between wisdom and foolishness. To understand the difference, we need to know the biblical definition of folly. A fool, in the biblical sense, is not necessarily someone with below-average intelligence. Folly does not always show up on the low end of the IQ scale. Rather, the term refers to someone who lacks the proper fear of God and therefore is prone to go the wrong direction in life. The scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Breitman goes on and says, It is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14, 1. So we've we've got a lot of uh, tenured fools on academic campuses who uh, IQs are off the charts, Rhodes Scholars, who say there is no God. Reichen goes on and says, To be sure, folly is often closely associated with wickedness. However, folly is not exactly the same thing as wickedness. It is an important biblical category in its own right. Many wicked people are deliberately malicious. But the fool is characterized instead by impulsive disobedience, self-centered arrogance, and a rash disregard for the holiness of God. In the words of Dan Allender, he or she is guilty of hot anger directed at themselves or others self-centeredness, and hatred of discipline and wisdom. That's a good description of a, of a biblical fool. Uh, it, it is uh, it's an impulsive disobedience. He goes on and says, The preacher, or Solomon, has told us many things about the fool already in Ecclesiastes. He is lazy, Ecclesiastes 4, 5, The fool is ill-tempered in 7.9. He's morally blind in 2.14. He refuses to take advice. That's 9.17. His life is not pleasing to God. Here the preacher adds that the fool is directionally challenged. And he's speaking of 10.2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now listen to his explanation of this. This verse defines folly with a short, memorable contrast, what a literary scholar would call an antithetical proverb. Perhaps this contrast is captured best in the Jerusalem translation, Jerusalem Bible translation, and this is very good. Jerusalem Bible translation says this, the wise man's heart leads him aright, but the fool's heart leads him astray. That's the sense. That makes total sense. He goes on and says, With apologies to left-handers, the Bible generally treats the the right side as the good side. The right hand was associated with a strength which saves, supports, and protects. In addition, the right hand was used to to convey blessing, such as the time that Jacob crossed his arms to place his right hand on Ephraim's head and thus gave him the greater blessing, Genesis 48. The right hand was also associated with authority, which is why Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, Colossians 3.1. Given this background, it is not surprising that at the final judgment, the sheep will be on the right, but the goats will be on the left, Matthew 25. When the preacher says that the fool is on the left, therefore he is telling us that that man is going the wrong direction in life. That's the point. Going the wrong direction on the broad way that leads to destruction. Verse 2 demands another look, though, because there's something here that we could miss. Verse 2 says, a wise man's, watch this, heart. A wise man's heart directs him towards, directs him aright or... not or, he says, but the foolish man's heart directs him astray. Uh, What path you're on, what path you choose, all has to do with your heart. Christianity is all about the heart. Deuteronomy 6, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Um, take a look at um, take a look at Proverbs four twenty three. Just one book to your left. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Um, in the Scripture, when it talks about the heart, you can think mind, but it's actually broader than the mind. When, when the Scripture talks about the heart, it's not talking about this thing that beats and thumps. It's talking about you. It's talking about... Um, It's talking about mine, it's talking about will, it's talking about emotions, it's talking, it's you, it's you. When, when, when you die, you've been to a funeral, you've seen an open casket. I remember my grandfather died, and I went to his funeral, and they had an open casket, and I was seven years old, and I looked, and I, my first thought was, he's not there. First thing I thought of, that's not my grandpa, that's his shell, but he's not in there. And he wasn't, he was with the Lord. His mind, his heart, his personality, you see? That's what the Bible means when it talks about heart. Watch over your heart, watch over over you, watch over your innards, watch over your mind, Watch, watch over your will. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? Well, because for from it flows the springs of life. Either foolishness or wisdom is going to flow out of the heart. So see, it's important what you put in your heart. It's important what you put in your mind. So if you look at Psalm 119, so just go another book to the left. If you look at Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm in the Bible... Yeah, You see these very familiar words there in verse 10. Actually, let's pick up 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? How do you get on the right way? How do you get on the pure way? How do you get on the right way? How do you get on the wise way? How can a young man keep keep his way pure? Watch this. By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, there it is again, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. I I try to pray two things every morning. I try to pray, let not the foot of pride come upon me, because it often has. I get full of myself. I get stupid. Uh, I get arrogant. Let not the foot of pride come upon me. Keep me humble. Keep me under your authority. The second thing I try to pray every day is, do not let me wander from thy commandments. Because I've done it, I've done it often, as you have. So how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you, with all my mind I have sought you. You see, <laughs> you've got to guard your heart, you've got to guard your mind. One of the ways you do that is by putting the word of God in your heart and in your mind. So that would be Romans 12. Um, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this world, which is on the broad way, which is on the wrong way, which is on the foolish way, the way of destruction. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, heart. Uh, in Luke six forty-five, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks, you see. So it's really critical what I put into my mind, what I think about. This is why we're here on a Wednesday night doing Bible study. Because we don't want to be conformed to the world. We used to be in the world. Before. This is where we were before we knew Christ, but he reached down and grabbed us and pulled us to himself. And now we're in the process of once, once you've been born again, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Once you're born again, and, and we've said this before, but, you know, when, when your wife was pregnant, that whole pregnancy, you're just talking about the birth. That's all you're talking about is the birth. And then boom, one day, you know, the water breaks and it's birth time. And out comes this little kid. And really, you never think about birth again except one, one day a year. What are you thinking about the rest of the days? You're not thinking about birth. It's birth has already happened. Now you're talking about growth. So once a year, they go into the doctor for a physical, and, you know, I remember we had uh, some, I had some Princeton Seminary, uh, a couple, and got married, had a little baby, and they're all excited. Second year, they got word from the doctor something was wrong because this little baby's not growing, and they found out this, this baby had a form of dwarfism. Obviously they're very concerned about, it because you see, there needs to be growth. Just as there needs to be growth physically, we need to be growing spiritually. Go to Colossians: 128, which is not to the left, but start going right, and if you can find Ephesians, keep going. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians 128. Paul says, "We proclaim him, who's him." Christ, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man, watch this, with all wisdom. We saw last week that the wisdom of God is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. We proclaim him, Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete or mature in Christ. The name of the game in the Christian life is to go from immaturity to maturity. And you see, as I'm in that process, here's what's going to happen. This is a hard issue. It's a hard issue. You get your blood work done, I get mine done. And uh, because coming up on four years, I had some work done, and uh, this is not good. So they told me to shape up, or they were going to shoot me or something. (laughs) They got my attention. Okay. They said, you need to hit this number, you gave me all these numbers. So I get my blood work checked about every six months. And uh, there's a cholesterol number, you guys know about that. And I knew about the cholesterol number. But then there's also this HDL thing and there's this LDL thing. And I think one of those means high density lipids and the other one means low density And I can never remember that. Here's what I know. When I think HDL, I think healthy. And when I think LDL, I think lethal. So under cholesterol, you want, to look at, you want to look at the healthy number and you want to look at the lethal number, you see, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to monitor your heart. Now, spiritually, when you're talking about your heart, what you want to come out of your heart is the HDL, which is wisdom. The healthy is the wisdom. The lethal is the foolishness. Because the the lethal can do a tremendous amount of damage as one sinner can do a lot of damage to what is good. And a dead fly can do to the English leather. So as we mature in Christ, what we want to do is we want to see the foolishness number go down and we want to see the healthy number, we want to see the wisdom go up. Right? But it takes a long time, doesn't it? You ever look back? I was talking with a guy this afternoon. And he said, you know, I'm 50 years old. I can't believe how foolish I've been. And he's been a Christian since he was in high school. Yeah. Because, see, this isn't, there's not instant maturity there's not instant growth. This is a process of of moving from foolishness to wisdom. Oh, there's my clock. Okay. Forgot they moved it. That's faster than the other clock. <laughs> I'm not sure that's right. Okay. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes. So you see, this this is this is all of this is chapter ten. We we want to make sure our spiritual hearts, we're here feeding on the word of God. See, if Jesus said, if you he who hears my words and does them, it's just not hearing it, it's doing it. The the Christian life is is not a seminary course. Um, I was doing a conference last month in Los Angeles, and, it was, you know, we had lunch in the middle of the conference and some young guys around the table, and one guy was asking me about um, family devotions and, you know, doing Bible study with his kids and doing Bible study with his wife, and, you know, he doesn't feel like he does enough, and he's, he, you know, he was just really intense, and i mean he he wants to do the right thing and he didn't grow up in a christian home and he's not quite sure what to do and and uh, and I, I said hey listen uh, this is good stuff but you got to relax a little bit you're you're you don't want to turn your you don't want to turn your house into a, a seminary you know it's a that's a home and you want it's 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 not uh, there's no midterm and final in this thing you know, Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and these are words I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Oh, and then you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way. I said, you see what he's saying there? What he's saying is, he's saying, you love the Lord, alright, so you, you spend some time in the scripture? He goes, yeah, I do. I'm, I'm He says, I don't do it every morning. And I said, well, that's all right. Most, most guys don't hit it every morning. I, I do a lot of traveling. I said, hey, God knows that. It's okay, man. It's all right. But you're working on it, right? Getting a systematic time in the word? He says, yeah, it's a real struggle. I said, yeah, I know. It is a struggle. But just just keep going. Just keep it up. You miss a few days, get back, get back in, the, in the word. So these words you're trying to hand you today, Deuteronomy 6, shall be in your heart. Um, oh, and you shall teach them diligently to your kids at 4.30 in the morning. Teach them Greek and exegete Romans 9. It doesn't say that. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. Well, see, that's, I, I, I love that. Because what God's saying there, he's saying, hey, you love me, I want you to put your word on your heart, and then you just walk through life with your wife and kids. And, you, know, and you, shall speak, you shall teach them diligently when you sit down. All the time when you sit down? No. Sometimes you watch football. Sometimes you just eat you know, a cheeseburger and fries. Uh, sometimes you're just hanging out. But, or when you walk by the way. Are you always saying, look at God's wonders in the creation? Let's, let's recite Psalm 19, kids, as we look at this nature walk. <laughs> Don't do that. You'll turn them off. But as you're going through life, stuff will come up. And because you've got the word on your heart, hey, Dad, what about this? Hey, Dad, what about that? And you, and you say, oh, God, what if they ask me something I don't know? They will ask you something you don't know. So you know what you say? You say, I don't know. But I'll tell you what, I'll go check it out, and I'll get back to you, and then go check it out, and read a commentary, or talk to a friend, or a pastor, or someone, and then get back to them. You don't have to know everything. Nobody knows everything. You see? but you're just walking together through life with the Lord. But the more you know him, the more you put it on your heart, the more you got more ammo inside. And you see, that's going to change your heart so that your propensity is not to foolishness, it's to wisdom. It's a long process. It doesn't happen overnight. Okay. I'm not out of the first section yet. Verse 3, he's still contrasting wisdom and folly. Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. Um, This commentator, S.A. Mandry, wrote this. Uh, He talked about the fool's propensity in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs for lying, slander, and infuriating others. The fool is clever, deceitful, yet supremely confident. He dismisses punishment and any attempts to discipline him. He rebels against any religion. The the fool calls everyone who differs from him a fool when they try to correct him. The fool relies on his own judgment and scorns advice. But you see, the problem with the fool is he cannot conceal himself. Uh, his inner flaws come out in the open. The problem with being a fool is that as you walk through life, you are absolutely buck naked. That's the problem with being a fool. And see, the greatest of fools don't see themselves as fools. They're absolutely blind. But they're absolutely naked, and everybody sees it. And we've all been there. you see the importance of the word and the heart? You're going to follow the inclinations of the heart. You're going to follow the inclinations of the mind. This is why we put the scripture in our mind. Don't forget what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Everyone who hears my word, hears my words and does them. The name of the game is not just to know scripture. The name, if I'm not mistaken, Chuck told me one time that when, he was ordained, coming out of Dallas Seminary. I'm almost sure this is what he told me. You know, because they do ordination here and the young guys come out and they're scared to death that you're gonna ask them a question they don't know the answer to, and you know, it's, it's a high pressure deal. And we, we did one of those a few years ago, and afterwards we were sitting around uh, and, uh, and Chuck was talking about his ordination counsel when he was examined. And I think it was Dr. Pentecost, Here is the opening question. If I'm not mistaken, he said, Chuck, outline for me the book of Ezekiel. That's how they started. (laughs) Have you ever read the book of Ezekiel? Now, see, that's a seminary question. But I'm going to tell you something. There are some guys, and I went to seminary with guys, and and I went to some guys, I went to seminary with some guys who could outline the book of Ezekiel. They were unbelievable. They could pretty much outline any book in the Bible. They had steel trap photographic memories. But because you can outline the book of Ezekiel doesn't mean you're living with wisdom. Because it's not about hearing the word of God, it's doing. The will, of, the word of God. You get that, don't you? The word of God is designed to change me, change my heart, and change me from the inside out so that I become a mature person and I'm leaving more and more of the foolishness behind and I'm moving more and more towards wisdom. And it makes me a better man, it makes me a better leader, it makes me a better husband, it makes me a better father, it makes me a better grandpa. You get this, don't you? Let's jump to uh, the second section, just because it's next, and it's logical. In verses 4 through 7, basically what this is about is choose wisdom under tyrannical leaders. Let's read it. If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position, because composure allays great offense offenses. Now he has said this before. Look at chapter 9, verse 17. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Uh, It's it's wonderful when you live under a good ruler, when you live under a good king, when you live under a good administration. Most Christians historically have not lived under pro-Christian rulers and kings The the tendency for most Christians, the way things work, is that usually the government and the rulers are against Christianity. That's the way it is in most places in the world. That's becoming increasingly the case in this country. So don't be surprised if the ruler's temper rises against you. He says, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. Um, What what he's saying here in verse 4 is... If you're in a situation, and and this can apply to the government, this can apply to a boss, it can apply to someone who's over you that has authority over you, and they're angry and they're upset. Um, How do you handle that? Well, he says a couple of things. He says, do not abandon your position. Uh, Don't leave your post. Don't resign in a huff. Keep your cool. Keep your calm. Keep your wits about you. Stay at your post because composure allays great offenses. Composure, wisdom. It's interesting Jesus told the disciples, there'll be a time when they will pull you up before the council and your lives are going to be at stake. And he basically said, don't worry about what you will say. It will be given to you in that hour. You got a meeting coming up. Have you got a big time review coming up? Have you got something in your life where some things that are important to you are hanging in the balance, and you know that that person on top is not for you, they're against you. It shall be given to you in that hour. Don't lose your composure. God's got you. He's got your back. He's got your front. He's got your flanks. They can't fire you unless he permits it, unless he wills it. They don't call the shots in your life. He calls the shots. You can't ever forget that. In verses 5 through 7, he goes on, still talking about choosing wisdom under tyrannical leaders. He says, there is an evil I have seen under the sun, like an error which goes forth from the ruler, from the boss, from the guy in charge, Folly is set in many exalted places while rich men sit or noblemen sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. What he's talking about here is, um, where's Kaiser? Kaiser nails this. Um, Walter Kaiser says this. The blunder and error of human governments can often be seen in this tragedies. Rulers put their foolish favorites into office over those who are more qualified. That's the point. Such strangers to the fear of God are called fools. Meanwhile, those who by birth and training are more qualified for such government posts are passed by. Uh, you go, you look, see that last verse? I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves. And he's talking about in, in, in positions of authority. Hey, back then, slaves couldn't read, for the most part. Sl- slaves could, had no education. But, and, and don't let the word rich turn you off. He's talking about noble. He's talking about those who have been trained, those who have been schooled. You remember Daniel, when he was taken into captivity, he and his three buddies, they were put into that um, upper-level management, a Kennedy School of Government, MBA, you know, Rhodes Scholar type of thing. They were being trained. They were were given the skills, uh, language skills, all these skills to handle situations that required tremendous wisdom and intelligence and discretion. you got to be trained for that stuff. What he's saying is, instead of taking the guys who were gifted to be in those posts, you just put your buddies in there. The classic, Solomon had a son by the name of Rehoboam. When Solomon died, Rehoboam took the throne. It took uh, David and Solomon, uh, had a united kingdom, the 12 tribes, they were united for 80 years. Rehoboam took over and the whole thing went down in 72 hours. Solomon was wise, Rehoboam was a fool. And part of the problem was, is that 10 of the tribes came to him and said, hey, listen, We we need you to give us a little break here on on what you're demanding of us and the work and all the building stuff. And he listened to them and he talked to the elders that had advised his father. And they said, This is a good thing. Relax it a little bit. They'll be appreciative. And then he talked to his peers, his buddies that he went to college with, his frat brothers. And they said, No, no, you got to be a hard guy. You got to be tough. You got to show them who's running this show. And so he did. And he said, hey, let let me tell you something. And in essence, what he said was, he said, my little finger is bigger than my father's sexual organ. Sounds like a young punk saying something like that. And so what happened, they rebelled, and the nation split in 72 hours because he listened to the wrong ones. Just his buddies, you, you get this, you see this. Incompetent people put into positions because of a friendship. We'll just leave it right there. Uh, The third major point, the third major section. Choose wisdom in your work. Now, it's interesting reading the commentators here because this section... uh, Uh, some of these scholars get very creative, but let's read it. He who digs a pit, verse 8, he who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be in- endangered by them. If he acts as dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. So he gives, you know, five different examples here of working. And you say, yeah, what's, what's, what's the point here? What he's talking about is working with wisdom instead of foolishness. You remember, foolishness can be impulsive. Uh, have you ever walked into a big warehouse and you're picking up something, to put in your truck, and they got a big sign on the wall, you know... We've gone 318 days without an accident. (laughs) You've seen that. Well, that's great. Uh, You ever read about something in the paper that, you know, they were digging a trench or a well somewhere, and uh, it caved in on the guy, and the guy with two or three, you know, a couple guys were killed? You ever read that? Sometimes accidents happen, but sometimes things happen not because it's an accident, because somebody wasn't using wisdom Basic wisdom, basic procedure that made sense. They weren't using wisdom. They were being foolish. There was a flight coming out of Denver back in 1987. Uh, Continental Flight 1713. And uh, they took off in a snowstorm. They... uh, Everybody on board was killed. But, you know, planes take off in snowstorms out of Colorado. I've done it. You probably have, too. But there's some background to this. Uh, The two pilots. Something very unusual happened. Kelly Englehart, an experienced flight attendant, was concerned about the cockpit crew. In an extraordinary step, she took... Captain Frank Zavonik aside at the gate and questioned him about the proficiency of the first officer. The man's extremely youthful appearance worried her. Her instincts unfortunately were on target, and it goes on and talks about him. He had just completed his DC-9 flight training and 8 weeks earlier, only 8 weeks earlier and, hard, and had hardly flown since. Before joining Continental he'd been fired from another job for his incompetence as a pilot, and she just was watching the guy and picked this up. So she says something to the captain. Uh, The captain told her not to worry. Okay. Yet the unusual continued to happen. As the DC-9 jetliner prepared for its roll down the runway, the captain was not at the controls. Instead, he delegated primary flying duties to First Officer Bruker. In addition to his dismal record with small commercial aircraft, Bruker had only spent 36 hours in his whole life flying big commercial jet aircraft. 36 hours. Oh, and Zavonic himself, the commander who had turned the controls over to Bruker, had only 33 hours of experience as a DC-9 captain. Neither man had ever flown a DC-9 in weather like this. One other irregular circumstance sealed the, of, uh, sealed the fate of Flight 1713. Not only are pilots required to visually check the wings every 20 minutes during freezing wet weather, but no more than 20 minutes should elapse between deicing and takeoff. Uh, particles of ice no longer than grains of coarse sandpaper can significantly disrupt the flow of air over the wing surface, a condition that has a critical effect on the plane's ability to lift during takeoff. On this day, Twenty-seven minutes had elapsed since flight 1713 was de-iced. Seven minutes beyond the maximum time, which gave ample opportunity for ice to form. Neither pilot ever emerged from the cockpit to walk back into the cabin and inspect the wing surfaces. Why not? What were they doing instead of checking the wings? According to this article that was in Reader's Digest... The two Continental pilots had never met each other until this flight. In the cockpit, after completing the standard checklist, they fell into a pattern of aimless chatter with sexual innuendos about one of the stewardesses. The last 30 minutes of conversation, saved for posterity by the cockpit voice recorder, are more remindful of two adolescent boys on a campout than two professionals charged with the safety of 80 men, women, and children. What was the outcome, the tragic outcome? outcome? Just seconds after takeoff, they crashed, and everybody on the flight lost their lives, including the two pilots. Dead flies in the uh, in the perfume. You see, uh, a little bit of foolishness can do a lot of damage. You notice all the construction on every road in Dallas-Fort Worth? <laughs> on every road. And you go your back way, you get another route, and they're, con- yeah, okay. Well, that happened to me today, only there was a stretch of road they hadn't had any construction on. I got on it, and they're diverting I-35 into one lane. And I'm trying to get to my noon Bible study. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be late. I'm going to be seriously late. Um... Finally, finally, it opened up. And okay, here we go. And I'm looking to get around this guy in front of me, who still thinks we're in one lane, but we're not. (laughs) And I'm trying to get around this guy, and I check my side, and I got a gap, and I'm thinking I got about a 60% chance of getting through that gap. (laughs) Maybe 50. So I went for it. So I went for it. And the guy behind me had to hit his brakes, and he got upset. I saw my mirror, he's making all these gestures to me. <laughs> and he's, he, he, he had a red shirt, and his face was becoming red. And he was upset, and I thought, you know what? I'm trying to bust my tail to get down there and teach Ecclesiastes 10. <laughs> and I just violated Ecclesiastes 10. This guy, and then he pulls alongside of me and you know, and I mean he, and I, I just looked at him. Yep, you're right. You're absolutely right. I'm a fool. That was that was stupid. That was stupid. Was it not? Let's take a congressional vote. <laughs> that was stupid. And for the rest of my drive down there, I'm thinking. Oh, this is really interesting. I'm going down there to teach these other guys the Bible about wisdom and foolishness. And then I'm going to quote these guys who crashed this airline, this Continental flight. Man, I'm going to preach it with authority and power. <laughs> <laughs> and I walked in here two minutes late. You know why I walked in here two minutes late? Because I resolved, as a, as a result of doing that, that, all right, Lord, Okay, now, help me apply what I'm teaching. So I get on the road to come over here, and then there's more construction, and then I've never seen it backed up coming over here. I haven't seen it backed up like that, and I can't remember the last time. And my whole temptation is to do what I had done earlier. And I thought, okay, Lord, help me to use wisdom and if I get there late, I'm going to get there late. But I don't want to be a fool, and I don't want to do something in a moment of impulse. And this is nothing to sneeze at. <laughs> I don't want to do anything that in a moment of impulse could bring devastation. I'm sorry. I, 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 I was just waiting for that. But you get the point, don't you? You see, I can, I can all day critique these guys. I did the exact same thing today. I could have caused a terrible tragedy. Was stupid. So I'm resigning as of now. <laughs> Aren't you glad for the grace of God and the forgiveness and His mercy? I am. I am. I'm glad He forgives sin and I'm glad He forgives stupid. <laughs> Verses 12, oh my gosh. Okay. Verses 12 through 15, choose wisdom in your speech. And what I'm going to do here, especially because of the time, I'm just going to go ahead and steal Warren Wiersbe's outline here because it's a good one. Nobody outlines like Warren Wiersbe. The guy is unbelievable. Uh, what you're going to have in verses 12 through 14, actually you 15, I'll go ahead and tell you, and then we'll read the text, okay? In, in, in 12 then the principle is choose wisdom in your speech and apply this to your home. That's what I want to do tonight. Let's apply it to where we live. In verse 12, you've got destructive words. In verse 13, you have unreasonable words. In verse 14a, the first part, you have uncontrolled words. And then in 14b to 15, you have boastful words about the future. So let's read the text in 12 Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The foolish, the foolish words of, a, of an unwise man actually cannibalize himself. In the beginning of his talking, uh, the beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. Paul Johnson wrote a book called Intellectuals, The Top Intellectuals of the 20th Century. I read it, talked about the, and not just the 20th century, but previous century. Men that, you, you, you go to a graduate school and you study these guys, and he, Rousseau um, uh, talked about some of the, um, uh, he talked about all the uh, tyrants and dictators that have been educated at the Sorbonne in Paris on the left bank. There have been more mass murderers that have come out of the Sorbonne University in Paris than anywhere else in the world. And man, it's the upper crust. But see, when you teach nonsense and you teach there is no God and you teach that this is the only world that there is and that there is no accountability and there is no judgment of God, that's how you have Pol Pot in Cambodia and you've got all those hundreds of thousands of skulls everywhere. This is where you get Stalin. They don't even know how many people Stalin killed. They don't even know how many he killed. His whole point in the intellectuals is that this is what these men espoused, but yet this is how they lived. They lived like hell. And it began with speech, and then because it was unchecked, what happened was they it, it turned into wicked madness. They became insane killers. Uh, Yet the fool multiplies words, 14, no man knows what will happen and who can tell him what will come after him. You don't know what's going to come. You don't know the future. 15, the toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. You know, back in Solomon's time, they they had roads that were clearly marked with distance. But you see what happens, a fool, he never shuts up. All he does, he's taken with himself. He can't take instruction from anybody or anything. And so what happens is he's so taken with his own life and what his stuff is all about that he's so weary, he doesn't even know how to go to a city. He can't even navigate life. They might make it to a city, but they can't navigate life because all they can do is get on the broad way. But you see, they won't get on the narrow way because they would have to submit to the ultimate authority. Uh, Verses 16 through 20. Choose wisdom under foolish officers and bureaucrats. Let me read this. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. What does that mean? It means they get drunk in the morning. They get drunk early. You feast late afternoon and evening. But you see, when you got immature leaders who are all about their own pleasure and about their own um, luxury and their own affluence, they start early in the morning, which usually for them is around 11 a.m. Blessed are you, O land, whose king, I'm in 17, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time. Blessed are you when you've got good leaders for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. They're not taking care of business. They're just about themselves. They're not, there, they're not there to serve the people. They're there to serve themselves. Men prepare for a meal of enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. What that means is... You got to have money to get through life. You got to have money to buy bread. You got to have m- money to repair the roof. You got to have money for wine. You got, he, he's not saying what it sounds like. He's saying, listen, if, if you don't have money, you can't buy food. If you don't have money, you can't buy the essentials. You got to have some money. Joe Lewis said, I don't love money, but it has a way of calming my nerves. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man, for the bird of heaven will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. Um, I want to quote Weirsby one more time here as we finish up. He has such wisdom on this section. Weersby says in verses 16 and 17 you have indulgence. You have leaders who indulge themselves. He says, if the king is immature, the people he gathers around him will reflect that immaturity and take advantage of it. But if he is a true nobleman, he will surround himself with the noble officers who will put the good of the country first. Real leaders use their authority to build the nation, while mere office holders use the nation to build their authority. They use public funds for their own selfish purposes, throwing parties and having a good time. Isaiah 3, 1 through 5 says it is a judgment of God when a people are given immature leaders. Let me say that again. Isaiah 3, 1 through 5 says it is a judgment of God when a people are given immature leaders. John Calvin says when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. In verse 18, you have incompetence, incompetence. These foolish officers are so busy with enjoyment that they have no no time for employment and both the buildings and the organization start to fall apart. There's a difference between those who use an office and those who merely hold an office. Immature people enjoy their privileges and ignore the responsibilities while mature people see the responsibilities as a privilege and use them to help others. Woodrow Wilson wrote, a friend of mine says that every man who takes office in Washington either grows or swells. When I give a man an office, I watch him carefully to see whether he is swelling or growing. Verse 19 is indifference. This verse declares the personal philosophy of the foolish officers. Eat all you can, enjoy all you can, and get all you can. They are totally indifferent to the responsibilities of their office or the needs of the people. Verse 20 is indiscretion. interesting. He said, uh, be careful what you say in your bed chamber. It'll get out somehow. Hey, and they they didn't have uh, the listening devices we have today. But you know, when when you tell a secret to one other person beside yourself, it's getting out. You know, we live in interesting times. It's, it's wonderful when you have leaders you can respect, but it's very difficult when you have leaders and you have no respect for them. Uh, I was talking with a friend of mine whose son is in the military and has been in the military quite a long time and is in a very high position. And he was coming up for reenlistment, and his, my friend, his father, was telling me he was talking with his son, married, four kids, How can you work in this environment? How can you work under this kind of leadership? And he said, you know, Steve, my son said, Dad, if the guys like me leave, what's going to happen? You know what he was saying? If the Daniels leave, what's going to happen? Weersby says, final word, even if we can't respect the person in the office, we still respect the office. You see, then we bring it to the Lord because he's in charge, ultimately, of who holds office. And sometimes we say, and Lord, I don't get it, and we don't get it, but he knows precisely what he's doing. So what would, what, what's the wise response? I trust in you, O Lord. I trust in you. My times are in your hand. I praise you. I trust you. I thank you that you're calling the shots and that you've made promises and that you take care of your people even in the worst of times. Help me to live wisely in a foolish world. That's our prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you. This battle between wisdom and foolishness rages in our hearts. And there are times we're thinking that we're starting to arrive, but then there's a warning, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. We are always in need of a Savior. We're always in need of forgiveness. I pray that as we drive home that you will help us to ponder one or two points that might um, be impressed upon our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Perhaps we've been walking in foolishness and we need to make correction quickly and turn to wisdom. Guide us, direct us. Thank you for mercy and grace as we ponder these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.